This is case 44 of the Shoyoroku. Xinjiang's Garuda. The introduction. A lion strikes an elephant. The Garuda strikes a dragon. Flying and running, they still distinguish ruler and subject. A patch-robed monk should remember guest and host. But how can someone who brazenly affronts the authority be judged? The main case. Monk asks Master Jingyang, a dragon comes out of the sea, sky and earth are tranquil. How is direct presentation? The master said, the Garuda bird takes command of the universe. Who can stick his head out there? The monk said, suppose one suddenly appears, then what? Jingyang said, it's like a falcon catching a pigeon. If you don't realize, check in front of the tower, then for the first time, you'll know the real. The monk said, if so, then I'll fold my hands on my chest and retreat three paces. Jingyang said, you blind turtle under the seat of Mount Sumeru, don't wait for another scarring from the wrap on your head. The verse. The imperial decree comes down. The commanding order is distinct. Within the heartland, the emperor. Outside the borders, the general. Without waiting the thunder to rust the insects, how could he know the wind stops the coursing clouds? A continuous weave under the loom. Naturally, there is gold needle and jade thread. Before the seal is wide open, emptiness. Originally, there is no writing. Second day of Sashin. No, Sashins are the practice in general and Sashin in particular. They are designed to bring things up to the surface. Now we, we say to go deep. Right? That's a a word we we often use in practice. When we go deep, what do we expect to find? Right? When we go deep, we do find what we usually are unable to get in touch with. And often we don't like what we find. And often we think it has something to do with the place. Or the structure, or the schedule. Right? But to go deep is, or to, to be willing to go deep means to be willing to encounter what arises. And also not to jump to conclusions about what it means. 
To, to go deep means to be willing to be curious. And it's not a simple task. There's a lot there that surfaces during a sashin that we, maybe for many years we try to suppress, push away, look away. But we come here to get in touch, to come face to face with the whole package. So during Sashin, you know, the, the moments seem to crawl by, especially when we are in Zazen. Yet the hours and days fly by so quickly, like an arrow. And awakened or not, before you blink your eye, it's all over. Going back home. You know, so in recognizing how quickly time flies, the question of how we use it becomes paramount. You know, everyday life, this question is typically answered with some quantified contents in reference to productivity level at work, getting things done around the house, getting some rest, being engaged in studies, or being entertained. It has to do with some content. But what does it mean here? We do none of that. There is no contents apart of the contents we bring with us, apart of what arises. What do we do with that? What is our relationship with time or using it well? here. Because during a sashin, this question, how we use time, takes a completely different meaning. It has to. A monk once asked Joshu, how can I practice 24 hours of a day? And Joshu said, do not be used by the 24 hours of the day. Are we used by the 24 hours of the day? Here, during this event. And to some degree, yes, we are. We're used by our conceptual relationship with the passing time. And it manifests in many ways. Now we could be trying to escape unpleasant thoughts, maybe spend time daydreaming, maybe turning our attention to our preferred self-soothing fantasies. Reside in the past, jump from one memory to another, seek comfort in futurizing or imagining, 
Maybe we, we try to escape the silence and the feeling of loneliness. Or maybe we hide. We come here to hide behind the silence. To escape the loudness of our everyday life. And all the people we have to deal with. And these are just common examples of how clever we are with checking out, escaping, not facing up. There are many of them. I'm sure you have your own versions. And all of this is just many ways to, to try to avoid looking directly directly at the fundamental truth of our existence. Or to look directly, period, without giving it a title. And when we get busy trying to distract ourselves from direct experience, we're not practicing 24 hours of the day. Actually, we're being at the mercy of time. Either waiting for it to go by fast or hoping it will never end. Depending on how we feel about what shows up. Hence Joshua's advice. If you want to practice at all times, watch the many ways you check out. And the many ways you allow yourself to be used by your conceptual image of the passing time. And also watch how you justify it. How we try to make sense of it. Or watch the gap between who you think you are and what you think time is. Dogen wrote a fascicle about being time. Being equals time. Time equals being. Look for the gap. Get back to me if you find it. During the first day of Sashin, we typically don't schedule Teisho. So it allows us to, to use the time, to use the first day to develop single-minded concentration and sink deeply into samadhi. But it doesn't just happen by showing up and following the schedule. Right? The task is to keep reclaiming the attention, which is very quickly and easily stolen by what floats in our heads. So we have to reclaim the attention, bring it back to the body, to the breath, to the totality of the experience, while in stillness or in movement. That's the instruction, ongoing instruction. So our task in Sashin is to remain wholeheartedly devoted to the way time shows up, moment by moment.
This is an essential component of what we call Zen training. And we need to watch, we need to be careful to watch the way we maintain the steadiness of our attention. If we're not attentive, we will not be able to develop the awareness to recognize when the attention drifts away. Could be an hour, could be a day, could be the entire session. Sometimes we look back and we recognize how how much of it we weren't even there. And we look back at our lives and sadly we look back and think, well, I remember something vague. What was the experience like? What is the experience like? We're working on cultivating a continuous, seamless awareness. And while we do that, we work with, or we have to deal with, the propensity to check out, or to, to drift away. And, and the danger in checking out is that it creates the illusion of a fragmented reality. creates the illusion of disconnectedness, alienation. And if we're not aware of this tendency, it just becomes a cyclic process. And our task is always to, to observe it, to recognize it, and to cut it. To really cut it, to use the sword of Manjushri the sword of wisdom, to use it well and to cut it so we can wake up regardless of what's going on in our heads. There's nothing that this sword cannot cut. And it's a cyclic cycle because unobserved thoughts and emotions result in Drifting attention. And unobserved drifting attention stirs up the mind and brings up further thoughts and emotions. And I think we can all attest to that. So the quality of our practice, especially the quality of our zazen, right? Because we, we dive into it and we emerge from it. We dive into zazen to develop something, to recognize something. So the quality is extremely important. Now whether you work with the breath, sit with the Kwan, or practice Shikantaza. And Sutani Roshi used to describe Shikantaza as the practice of just sitting by saying that it's like walking in a crowded marketplace, balancing a jug of water on your head, trying to not spill a drop. And he's talking about the level of concentration that's required, that we are required to maintain in our practice. 
And he says, you need to be aware of everything. If your mind just focuses on one thing, you miss something else. If you just focus on the kid on the pogo stick in front of you, you don't notice the donkey with a huge basket of dried peppers walking on the other side of it. And you will bump into that donkey and spill your water. It's a nice way to describe that. You have to be aware of everything, he says. All of the merchants, the shoppers, the children, the animals. If you're too loose and you're not paying attention, you'll spill the water. If you're too tight and somebody just slightly bumps you, you're unable to absorb it, you'll spill the water too. You need the right tension to help you concentrate. Not too tight, not too loose. As you've heard many times. And there's another line there. There is a soldier walking behind you with a drawn sword. If you spill a single drop, he'll cut your head off. And it's real. Because when we lose the concentration, when we check out, are we alive? Yeah, the, the heart is pumping, the blood is flowing through the veins. Are we alive? Is the question. Are we partaking? You spill a drop, your head is cut off. It's real. It's not a game. It's not an experience to go through and then go home and tell friends. It's not a box to check. It is about our lives. So is, this, is, is this the kind of meticulous effort you bring into your zazen? How do we do that, right? How do we bring this kind of attention and awareness to our practice without being frozen? Thinking about the soldier with the drawn sword behind you. But we have to raise our practice to this level because if we don't, well, we know what happens when we don't. We know what kind of Patterns are floating around in our heads, old patterns of thought, behavior, just waiting for you to lose the concentration for a split second. And a split second of losing concentration can result in days of storytelling and believing. And being drowned in the agony of our lives. So this description, it may sound exaggerated or harsh. But it's a good, it's a good guidance for us. It's a good, it's great advice for us to be watchful. Zen training is a matter of life and death. 
All sentient beings are governed by life and death. It's not a Zen idea. And as human beings, we, we tend to put a veil on this basic primordial truth. And we operate under the falsehood of having plenty of time ahead of us. As if we actually act and we live as if we are going to stick around forever. Yeah, we know we're not going to stick around forever, but does that knowledge actually permeate our lives? Because the fact is that every passing moment will never return. Just think about this for a second, right? This moment. All of us sitting here quietly in this beautiful place, on this beautiful mountain. Do we appreciate it? Is that where the attention is? Or is it the aches and pains, the thoughts, self-deprecation, or whatever is going on? So our tendency to check out our tendency to chop reality or to make it what it's not, to create fragments. That is what we come in with. And our practice is a way to realize that it's not like that. It's a way to realize that we are making this up. It's a way to show us what we do, and it's a way to show that we don't have to do it, that there is another way. So Zazen, Zen, is the way to realize unity. But when unity is realized, is there anybody there who can say, I have realized? When we realize unity, how can anything be said? How can anyone be a part of that? How can anything be a part of that? If someone says, I've realized, that person has to be standing outside of that which this person claims to realize. And that's just another duality. And that brings it back to this corn. Right? This is the notion this monk is holding on to. 
So he goes to see his teacher, Jing Yang, and he says, A dragon king comes out of the sea, sky and earth all tranquil. How is direct presentation? So dragons are, as you know, a depiction of realized beings. And so this guy is saying that he has smashed the chains of delusions. No longer hindered by anything. And has emerged out of the sea as an all-powerful dragon. Realizing tranquility and peace. Sounds like great achievement. So Jing Yang says, the Garuda bear takes command of the universe. Who can stick his head out here? Now the Garuda bird is a bird-like creature from Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism, which is believed to be born fully grown and fully awakened. And it has great powers and capacities including the ability and appetite to devour dragons. So the Garuda bird is waiting, hovering over the world, waiting for someone to say, I've realized, or to think, I've realized. So that's why Jing Yang says, watch out. A bird is like a hawk gliding over the earth, looking to feast on its next prey. And you may be its lunch. What does this have to do with us, maybe you ask? Right? People actually often ask this about Koans in Zen. And it can be, and it is a source of frustration, not being able to make the connection between those stories from 1,000, 1,500 years ago to this day. But the fact is, koans are not about some Chinese dudes from that time. They're not as abstract as they seem to us. They only seem this way because we insist on looking at them through logical and conceptual way of thinking. We insist on, instead of changing ourselves, we insist on changing the words to fit us. Instead of looking at ourselves, how am I looking at it? Rather than, I mean, the easier way, of course, is to look at something and either accept or reject it based on our parameters. And what the coins are asking us to do is to put the parameters, all parameters aside, and look at it in a different way. Or asking, how else can you look at it? Yeah, we get it. It sounds odd. How else can you look at it? 
before giving up, which is obviously an option. But we, we really have to change. So when we talk about direct experience, now think about it. If you give a statue to an adult, beautiful statue, right? The adult will look at it, put it on a shelf, and admire it from afar. And what happens when you give a statue to a baby? The same statue. She'll put it in her mouth, right? Try to chew it, smell it. There's no idea yet formed in the mind. Direct experience. No thought, no buffer. No middleman. So, and that's what we're required to do with koans. Always Zen stories. Rather than see that as something that is irrelevant to us because it's about another time, another culture, other people. So he's asking us to be playful, to cut through the veil of thought, to experience directly. So back to this koan. Let's say you've been sitting for a while, developed some degree of samadhi, experienced some equanimity, some peace, and it feels great. Then Zazen ends. You're back to dealing with everyday stuff. Back to dealing with all the people that show up. And it, it feels as if that while you were meditating, all of them were just concocting the next way to attack you and destabilize you. Shishin Roshi commented on this. He said, what happens when you get off your cushion? The dragon only has one foe, the Garuda bird. When the Garuda bird is hunting, it spreads its massive wings and fans, and fans the waves and separates the waters of the ocean. It sees the dragon crawling around the ocean bottom like insects. And then it dives down and preys on them. Thus, the master, in this case, says the Garuda attains the universe at such a time who would who dare stick his head out. And then he says, when you rise from your Zafu, what is the one thing, or are there many, that spoil your tranquility and invincibility? Is it the girlfriend Garuda? The boss Garuda? The baby Garuda, the ex-spouse Garuda, the crazy driver in front of you Garuda, or just some gener generic Garuda who happens to penetrate your protective shield. Now you see how relevant it is, right? How universal it is. 
how common it is, right? We develop some, some sense of clarity. Then something comes and, and threatens to take it away. And that thing does not have to come from the outside. Well, it never is outside. It could be our own thought. Our own emotion. Our own memory. And it feels like in the, in, in the blink of an eye, it's all lost. And even here, you know, being as a sheen, or destabilize you. Maybe you're bothered by the discipline, by being tired, by being cold, irritable, by having to watch the way you deal with the jihatsu procedures. I just want to eat. I don't want to bother with this. Why do I have to be quiet? whether on the cushion, off the cushion. Right? It, seems, it seems as if there is this paradigm, right? There is this, we go from here to there, from there to here, right? There is, we don't know how to maintain. It's as if we have to keep it from being attacked. And the fact is that even that is our creation. Even the idea of creating something and then having to protect it, that by itself is another idea. Of course, if we hold on to something, it is threatened. You know, a state of equanimity, a state of peace has to include everything and everybody. Has to include what's, what arises on the cushion and what arises off the cushion. And when it doesn't, we're going to keep experiencing this. As long as samsara and nirvana are not seen as one, it will be impossible to have any long-lasting sense of equanimity or peace. So this monk either didn't get it or just wanted to stir things up. Maybe have a Dharma dialogue. So he kept pushing Jingyang and asked, suppose one suddenly appears, then what? And Jingyang said, it's like a falcon catching a pigeon. Suppose one suddenly appears. Yeah, I understand, but I'm special. In my case, it's different. 
And he says, it's like a falcon catching a, a pigeon. You know, it's not that there's no realization. It's just that when realization comes, nobody appears. If someone appears, that's another duality. Right? If, if you think, or if we think we have realized, and we go to engage the world with such a thought in our mind, we will very quickly fall on our face and be very disappointed. It's like a falcon catching a pigeon. That's how quickly it happens. And then Jing Yang said, if you don't realize, check in front of the tower, then for the first time, you'll know the real. And this is referring to a time in China where when someone offended the emperor, he would cut off their head and hang it in front of the balcony for everyone to see and beware. Maybe a less violent way to say this would be, take heed, do not squander your life. Wake up now. Because when you drop a single drop of water, right, the soldier behind you will cut off your head. Because when we check out, we turn against life itself. And it doesn't matter how long we practice, right? Even after long practice, even after years of practice, we could still find ourselves taken down by something that happens unexpectedly, by some kind of injustice, or someone who acts in deluded ways. And so Xinjiang is saying, if you don't realize this, just take a look at the many times you have tried to chop up reality to fragments. The many times you have or you are creating dualities. And take a look at what happens when we do that, individually, as society. Just look and see that it doesn't work. So look in front of the balcony. Look around. Read the news. So the monk responded by saying, if so, then I'll fold my hands on my chest and retreat three paces. And Jingyan said, you blind turtle under the seat of Mount Sumeru, don't wait for another scarring from the wrap on the head. So at this point, the monk just went along with rules of Dharma combat and took the role of, uh, of the defeated. This was also a waste of time and of no use. So Xinjiang both scolded him and gave him a lifeline. 
And he was saying, if you keep playing such games, ask such questions, I will also chop off your head. There's another master who was confronted by a monk with a similar question. And he said, you haven't eaten yet, so why are you asking about defecating? It's not that Zhang Yang himself was on top of anything or was showing off or had a problem with this guy. You know, the introduction says, how can someone who brazenly affronts the authority be judged? Right? And yes, it is pointing at Zhang Yang, but the authority is not the person. The authority is the invaluable law, the Dharma. Can we go against it? Can we go against the way things are, is the question. We try, but does it work? Practice is not inventing anything. It's just pulling our attention back from the many ways we chop it up, the many ways we create delusions. It is pulling the attention away from that. And it is bringing it back to this. Put aside your complaints. Put aside what you like, what you don't like. Just put it aside for a while. And put aside the worries for a while too. Because it never stops. I was talking to somebody recently about some stuff this person was going through. He was going through some rough times a while ago and he said, things are better now. This is better, that is better, my relationship is better kids, finances, whatever he was worried about before. And he said, but I'm still worried. I don't even know about what. I'm just worried. And it's a way of being. A lot of our emotional states just way, they become a way of being. And it doesn't really matter whether we have something to to rail against, some something to or somebody to blame or something to worry about. Well, we always find something, but the emotion itself seems to be freestanding. Or the state of being seems to be freestanding. Independent of what happens. So how can someone who brazenly affronts the authority be judged? Well, we pay a heavy price. Life is judging us. Reality is judging us. 
and executing. And it's not personal, of course. The verse says, the imperial decree comes down. The footnote says, listen to the message of the sages. That's the inviolable law of the Dharma. The commanding order is distinct. And the footnote says, those who violate it are decapitated. The image is harsh, but the point is real. Those who violate it miss the mark, as in sin, which is what sin means, to miss the mark, to miss the point, to live as if things are not so. To live as if we're going to live forever. Within the heartland, the emperor, the footnote says, the Lord faces a thousand countries because it's everywhere, because it's the ten directions, because there's nowhere it does not reach, because it's contentless, it's shapeless. Structureless, faceless. Outside the borders, the general, and that's referring to Dharma teaching or teachers, or how we as, as Sanghas keep this alive. And the footnote to that says, Jingyang's keen eye and swift action that's the general. That's his job. To point out to us when we keep on creating using the Dharma instead of realizing the Dharma is there to show us what's real. Instead of that, we take Dharma teachings and make something out of them. Because often we can't help it. That's why there is a Garuda bird waiting. Without waiting the thunder to rouse the insects, how could he know the wind stops the coursing clouds? And the footnote says, even getting up at dawn, there's already someone who travels by night. That's Xingyang's keen eye. He sees right through him. A continuous weave under the loom. Naturally, there is gold, needle, and jade thread. Before the seal is wide open emptiness. Originally, there is no writing. And the footnote says, the meaning of the graphs is clear. And the live word here is before the seal. 
before we are born, before thoughts arise in our mind, before we begin searching, it is already so. Joshua once asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen said, ordinary mind is the way. And Joshua asked, should I direct myself towards it or not? Nansen said, if you try to turn towards it, you go against it. If you seek, you can't find. Not because it's elusive but because you seek. If you seek, you look elsewhere. Or if you seek, you're caught up in thinking or believing or trusting that you're not it or this is not it yet. And as long as that notion is strong and we trust that notion, then we will keep seeking. And as nonsense said, we will turn away from it. And the thing is, this is, you remember Vimalakirti Sutra, emancipation beyond comprehension. It is beyond comprehension. It has to be this way because it's all-encompassing. It's beyond our ability to think about it. Yet always available. So what is realization then? Right? You may remember the story from the Vimalakirti Sutra, Shariputra and the Goddess where the goddess was having a conversation with Shariputra and he was hung up on the idea that uh, women cannot achieve. That was back then uh, the notion that women cannot be realized unless they are born as a man. And so she decided to turn him to a female, herself to a male. Twisted it completely. There was a dialogue between them. Then he was lost. Then she turned it back to him. And at the end, he said, she asked him, what have you realized? And he said, I've realized that, there is, that nothing can be attained, so I've attained it. And then the goddess replied, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are that way too. They've realized that there is nothing to attain, so they've attained it. Which means we, we realize that there's nowhere else to go and nothing else to be or nothing else to do. But for that, we have to stick around. For that, we have to watch the many ways we get caught up in what we ourselves create. Volitionally or not. We have to watch the way we get caught up in it. 
So when we realize that there's nothing to realize, we realize. And that's what's been passed on from generation to generation, from teacher to student. And speak of Dharma transmission, there's an interesting story about Jin Yang, the teacher, and this koan, which actually connects Rinzai and Soto in a very interesting way. Rinzai was a Chinese Zen master during the 10th, 11th century, a successor of Taiyu Kyogen. You may remember we chanted that today, that name, in the Soto lineage. And Jing Yang was one of 15 successors of Kyogen, and sadly, all 15 of them died before Kyogen, and none of them left any successors. So at the age of 80, despairing that his lineage might die with him, Kyogen took a very unusual step, and he entrusted his lineage to a prominent Rinzai teacher at the time, Fuzan Hoen. When Kyogen died, the essential teaching of the Soto lineage remained with Fuzan. After many years, Fuzan encountered Tosu Gisei, again, you may remember that name from today's chant, a Soto-ordained monk whom he deemed a worthy Dharma vessel for Kyogen's teachings. And Fuzan transmitted the Dharma to him, the lineage to him. So then Kyogen, Kyogen's teaching were, was kept alive in that way. So as it turns out, the main Soto lineage took a side trip to Rinzai tradition and then came back to Soto. It's one of the many ways the Soto and Rinzai are connected. And even, if, even after realizing that there's nothing to realize, even then, it doesn't mean that the work is over. Monk was asked, question, after a person has attained instantaneous enlightenment, must this person still cultivate spiritual life? And Kweishan said, if a person is truly enlightened, has realized the fundamental, and is aware of it experientially, this person is actually no longer tied to the poles of cultivation and non-cultivation of practice. But ordinarily, even though the original mind has been awakened, there still remains the inertia of habit formed since the beginning of time, which cannot be totally eliminated at a stroke. This person must be taught, must be taught to completely cut off the stream of habitual ideas and views caused by the still-operative karma. And this process of purification is considered cultivation. And this is, you know, this is always relevant for all of us. At any point in our practice, whatever we have realized, whatever we think we have freed ourselves of, we have to put that aside. And we have to keep cultivating again and again and again and again without creating anything of it. And also without being surprised when we're caught up by something or some stream of habit that we thought we have eliminated. 
We thought we're done with that. And that's always the case, continuous cultivation of practice. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what we think we have realized. Or the only place it, the only place it does matter is right now. finish with the teachings of Master Rinza. He said, if your faith is insufficient, you will keep, keep on wandering in confusion. No matter what the circumstances, you will be controlled and led around by others. You will not find freedom because you don't have enough confidence in yourself. You search outwardly. And Controlled and led around by others is not necessarily other people. It's never really other people, right? It's the other in us. It's our own judgmental voices. Our own discriminating consciousness. Those are the others we have to watch for. Right? So we have to develop the trust whether we see or not, whether there is pain or not, whether we are cruising or on a bumpy road. All of it has to be included. And all of it is a part of our cultivation. So we still have some time in this machine. We still have opportunities. We still have lots of zazen ahead of us. And pain. And all kinds of thoughts that are waiting around the corner in the zendo. Change the way you meet them. Include them, but don't follow them. Include all of it in your practice. But stick around. Keep bringing the attention, moment by moment attention, to whatever it is that's going on in a seamless way. So when you go to the Zendo, before Zazen begins, before what we call official Zazen time begins before the Jikido hits the bell. Don't just sit and wait. Practice. Then there is a bell. So what? Big deal. Practice. Pay attention. Don't think that this is a, a time to take a break from practice because Zazen has not begun yet. Or when Zazen ends. Oh, thank God for that. I can take a break. A break from what? If we think we need a break, we don't understand what we're doing. It just changes from sitting 
to standing, to walking, to sleeping, to taking a shower, to cleaning, eating. But it's seamless as it changes. Except for the mind that says no. Something ends, something begins. And that's how we chop our head off. Please pay attention.